Welcome to Herblandia. I'm your host, Andrew Quarry. On today's show, we have our guest, Jermaine Barnes, joining us. Uh, Jermaine, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, this is the first time I've ever been on a podcast. So <laughs> this is a milestone for me. That, that's amazing. I'm glad that it was on, on, on ours here. Um, so tell, tell me a little bit more about uh, what is it that you do, um, titles, you know, you know, where you're coming from as far as your career and, um, you know, just your journey right now in, in, in the space of architecture. Gotcha. So uh, I'm currently based in Miami, Florida, originally from Chicago, uh, architectural designer. Um, I have my own practice called Studio Barnes, where it's focused on finding the social and political agency of architecture, uh, specifically through black domesticity, because I am a black man. Uh, I'm also an assistant professor of architecture at the University of Miami School of Architecture, where I also direct the Community Housing and Identity Lab, uh, also known as CHILL, where we research those same topics of social and political agency within architecture. But that is more uh, expansive beyond just the Black community, but to marginalized communities as a whole. And um, now it's kind of cool to have so much focus on black designers, architects, contributors to the built environment. Uh, I just wish it wasn't under such awful circumstances. Yeah, and, um, you know, we're diving right into that. Uh, You know, being that your focus and your practice is so much around social construct and, uh, you know, the built environment, what it, what is the the way forward as you would prescribe for cities uh, who are tr- trying to do the right thing or you know a- accomplish uh, a reform through this new lens based upon what's currently happening in our in our in our in our country right now um, you know which is around George Floyd being one of the the the, the, the straws that finally broke out into the situation right now the consciousness of everyone waking up. Uh, to the situation in 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 America, uh, what do you how do you prescribe the way forward for those who want to build and make reform and changes? I think it starts at a policy level. The first thing is to unravel and dismantle a lot of the racist and discriminatory policies that have plagued rural and urban America for decades uh, since the 1930s and 40s. Um, when you look at the fact that most of our cities are planned uh, by racist policies that restrict black individuals' earning power, it has a lot of ramifications for the rest of the built environment. And we see things like these protests that happen because when you don't have adequate public housing, when you don't have adequate access to resources, when you don't have adequate access to public infrastructure, this stuff isn't accidental. When you have highways that split black neighborhoods, these things are all intentional. These things are not done by accident. These things are not some sort of coincidental moment that's happened at almost every single major city across the country. Uh, there's a there's a specific intentionality that comes to protecting uh, white supremacy and white people, which was embedded within uh, the Supreme Court all the way down from restrictive zoning measurements, uh, redlining, and things like that. And so when you get to that point, you start to see why why people are in an uproar and why people are fed up because 
Families aren't able to build generational wealth through housing, which is one of the core components in that. Like you have examples in the past of things like Levittown, which is one of the predominant uh, examples of suburban housing, and it was restricted to white people only. And then you have things like white flight, where individuals are told by their uh, homeowners associations or by their realtors that a black person's moving in, and then people leave a neighborhood and it becomes destitute, or you have things like racial barriers and walls, which are erected because homeowners and developers say, I won't build a housing complex in this area unless you make something that clearly shows that this is white only and that blacks aren't allowed here. So when you look at the stuff that's happening now in the built environment, at least, you're seeing a lot of the reverberations of things that happened many decades prior that the average person doesn't know anything about and just assumes that they made it where they made it off of their own hard work when there were systemic things that gave built-in advantages to one racial group over another. And, and, and so um, when you speak of, you know, the intentionality of the system that was created to, to continue to marginalize uh, a very specific segment and here in America, of course, that's uh, the black population. Um, what, what are we doing right now? What are programs that are available to help, you know, developers rethink or, uh, I mean, their approach or, uh, you know, that you can point to that is currently working or, you know, whether it's around affordable housing, even within what you've done in your own um, sort of, uh, you know, exercises or research or implementations, uh, what are some of the programs that are working and what, what, what is currently working right now? What I've found across the country and then the work that I've done here in Miami is that the projects that are more successful are the ones that are inclusive of the community where they're supposed to serve. Uh, unfortunately, in the past, architecture, developers, urban design has typically been devoid of the community voice. It's been a specific subset of people in a room making unilateral decisions that affect tons of people who live in a neighborhood and those individuals making those decisions very rarely live in those neighborhoods. So things that I've done is uh, join the city's planning board um, for cities that have it as far as uh, volunteership, right? So you can go in and you can have a voice and allow equitable development of cities by demanding things of the developers, such as more trees uh, that will help a lot of these areas that have heat island uh, problems, which then cools the neighborhood and makes them more walkable and then makes these things more environmentally friendly. Um, and then you can add things in developers' agreements. Developers' agreements are probably the biggest thing that, that you can advocate for because it essentially determines the developer can't do the project or not. And you can demand things such as adding people from local workforce so that you can employ people as they're building. You can demand a certain amount of community space and you can demand a certain amount of green space that's given back. There's a lot of things that are built into policy that allow you to have a voice. The problem is it's the timing that it takes to get into those meetings where uh, they might be 7, 8, 9 p.m. at night, and the constituents that need to be there don't have someone to amplify their voices because they have other more pressing items like jobs or children or families, um, et cetera. So those are some of the biggest things I would say. Like You can have the opportunity. You can get to these community meetings. You can get to these urban planning and commissioner, aldermen, depending on where you are, meetings. That is the first step to implementing true change because the people that are elected do not want to offend their constituents. You just need to put pressure on them. 
And so as far as developing community leaders, um, you know, being that you you teach at um, University of Miami, um, how do we prep the next generation to become those leaders or even take the community activists uh, into this uh, space where they, you know, they're resourced to be able to take action, be, you know, being able to show up to the, to the meeting if the mom who is, you know, having to work two jobs uh, to make ends meet at home or, you know, whether disabilities uh, someone might be experienced, you know, that they can't make a meeting at a, at a given time, you know, how, how do you resource them? You know, we, we see we see recently uh, because of COVID, uh, the pandemic, a lot of people have gone online with their meetings. So it's gotten very interesting that participation now can happen from anywhere you are. But I'm just wondering that as we, you know, get into this new reality and people pushing to go back to normal, where a lot of in-person interaction will, you know, will will happen, that this might not, that that tool might not persist. So, but how do you, you know, resource uh, people to become that leader that stands up for their community uh, and have that network for them, working for them? I think you just touched on a really important thing, and it's it's prepping the next generation of professionals. Um, it's it's very hard to change the mind and ideologies of people that are uh, at a certain age where they know what they know. Um, a lot of times you can sort of add new information, but it doesn't override the things that they've already been accustomed to, the things they've already convinced themselves of. So you try to do it with the younger generation. <clears throat> and as a professor, uh, the things that architecture, urban planning, landscape, other design fields can do is like a, a simple approach, right? So one is stop relying on Eurocentric models of, of design education. Everything doesn't have to be Bauhaus. It doesn't have to be entrenched in modernism. There's beautiful examples of architecture from the continent of Africa. There's beautiful examples of architecture from Central America, the Caribbean, South America. Um, there's great contributions from uh, black designers, indigenous designers, uh, Latino designers. And a lot of times this is missing from the canon. Um, a lot of times what you're given <clears throat> is the same regurgitated individuals from Scandinavia over and over and over again, like as if that's the only way to practice design. So that's one thing, because now you're allowing students to see a diverse representation of building methods and design and, and, uh, and individuals. The second thing is, is you want to increase the visibility of black designers and things like that. So you want them to be able to know that these people exist. Because it's one thing to show examples of buildings from individuals that may have passed on or five or six cherry-picked individuals and you promote them religiously. There's a tons of other individuals doing work within different departments. So um, a good example is if you work for the city of Miami and you're in their planning department and you have a massive hand in designing one of the brand new parks that's there in the city, you would rarely get any recognition of that at all because you're an employee of the city and the city is who takes ownership over their project. So when students are looking for examples, one might mention go look at Park X on Street Y, but they never know who's the person that designed it. And so being able to show those individuals is super important also. And then lastly, I'll say um, architecture, urban planning, design education has a responsibility to increase the amount of black voices within academia. So hiring more professors, hiring more TAs, uh, hiring more directors, because then those diverse opinions and those diverse histories are able to change the core curriculum and add a lot of the history from these oppressed communities and then tell the story, the true story of how America and these other first world countries 
um, were developed through colonialism and through imperialism and through repression because then it informs the students, do I want to repeat a lot of the same problems from the past? Do I want to perpetuate a lot of the same stereotypes? And I would argue that the majority don't. Um, the majority want to do the right thing. They just only do what they know. And if we're not inform informing them of these uh, these realities, then how are they supposed to go forward with the full understanding of the built environment? Now, uh, what are some of the major barriers uh, for, you know, young people, especially coming out of uh, marginalized uh, marginalized communities and uh, within specifically here in America, within, you know, the black population. Um, what are what are some of the, the blinders, so to speak, that will prevent someone from getting into a career of architecture? Um, because, you know, most of the time when people think about, you know, the hood, uh, you're thinking about, well, you're going to come out being ballers or rappers or whatever it might be. That's the stigma, right? And, and how do you yeah. get, what's, what's your ticket out? So what have you seen in this, you know, the, the mindset of kids? Are they even thinking about becoming architects at a young age, trying to say elementary, high school? Where, where does the seeding of, hey, you can be this and, and, and here's why it's important and you can make a life and a career out of this and be of impact? Where, uh, where, are, you, where are you seeing that happening? Am I allowed to curse? On this oh, yeah. oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so this shit is expensive. Architecture is an expensive-ass field, just to be as blunt as, as possible, right? Like, it is not cheap. Between the tuition, which is already high because the American school system essentially uh, has a racket on personal debt, and they don't want to help the average person go to school uh, for a reasonable price. Like, most other developed countries, we'd rather tax you to death. So that's one thing that it's too expensive. The second thing is, it's once you actually get within the school, it's hard to be as focused as possible when you have so many ancillary things you have to take care of. So let's just so let's just take this as a as an example and what the typical black or brown student has to deal with trying to pursue architecture. So one, you already know you're gonna have a lower economic financial stability because this country isn't equal or has no equity for black and brown individuals. So you're already one step behind. So now you apply for loans or maybe you're lucky enough to get scholarships and you get into the school of architecture of your dreams. So you're in there. You get to the school and you learn that that was just one portion. You have to buy materials, you have to buy books, you have to buy a top line machine and all of this software and stuff because you have to be able to do the work and do the work well. So now you might have to work a job because you need all these other expenses. And most times the funding you get through school is through work study. It's not like here's a check that you can just go ahead and focus on school only. It's no, you're gonna work for this. So now you have to spend time between working. And if you've ever seen an architecture school or architecture student, most of the time we're working 16, 17, 18 hours out of the day because you're trying to work on these projects outside of class. So now you have to ask yourself, how much time do I have to commit outside of class to do extra work? Like it's one thing to do homework for an hour or two hours, but you might spend six, seven, eight, 10, 13 hours in the studio, no exaggeration. Now you're asking me to do this over the course of four years minimum, five years maximum at the undergrad level, maybe an additional two to three years at the graduate level. So while you're picking up all of this debt or 
you're spending all of these long, strenuous hours within the field trying to figure it out. You're surrounded by people who don't look like you. You're surrounded by faculty who aren't representative of where you're from. You're reading books. You're looking at literature that has no symptoms of recognition from your plight. So you feel like you're an isolated person within this field, within this classroom, within this institution, and the idea that you're supposed to overcome all these hurdles to get to the next step. And the next step is employment. So if you have professors who don't look like you, who treat you differently because they're not familiar with your background or where you're from and they're not reflective of that, then very rarely are you the one that's chosen to be an intern or to get a job afterwards. So now you're already another leg behind. Right, so there's all these institutional barriers that are present for black and brown students. And having been someone who comes from a two-parent household, middle-class family, like I had all the financial stuff, so that was never an issue. The issue was I didn't have a voice within my classroom. I didn't have individuals to talk to. I didn't have professors who understood or had empathy for the route that I had to take or the things that I had to endure while I was in school. So that was this whole other thing. The fortunate side of it, um, now that we have that example of what students have to go through, is that more people are reaching out to high school uh, STEM and, and pipelines to try to get more students within architecture. But if they don't increase their diversity fellowships and diversity scholarships and things like that, it's not going to matter. Because you can go do as much recruitment as you want to, but it ultimately comes down to can these students afford to get into these schools? And a lot of times, they can't. And I'll say one last thing on this before I let you jump back in, and that's that architecture is rarely promoted within black communities. When we're young, a lot of our parents tell us, you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an entrepreneur. Like those are the, like the only three jobs that they've ever heard of. Right? And the last one being an entrepreneur is so ambiguous. It can be anything. You can be an architect yeah. and be an entrepreneur if you own your own practice. So it's not a field that's typically taught or people are told about. If you ask somebody, you're an architect, what do you do? The first thing they ask is, they say you build buildings. And it's like, no, an architect actually does not build anything. We design the buildings, the contractors build them. So there's not enough information that's going around um, to allow people to understand these different career paths, but it's out there. Now, um, did you personally um, experience racism, like, up front in your face? Oh, hell yeah. Because sometimes people, you know, will say, yeah, yeah, well, you're talking from the collective, right? There's the air about us that, okay, well, it affects one, it affects all, which is true. But a lot of times those, there are personal stories. Do you have any? Yep. Oh, yeah. I have I have two, which literally shaped um, how, no, three, how I've gotten how I, how, where I am now. So the first one was uh, I went, I'm from Chicago, the west side of Chicago. But again, like I said, I have two-parent household, regular middle-class family. But the neighborhood we lived in, what you would consider the hood, because most times black people want to live around other black people because you don't have to be stared at for being a, a stranger in your own neighborhood. So I grew up in a big house because the neighborhood that we we're in used to be a white neighborhood and they all left when one black family moved in. So you have tons of black families living in these massive four or five bedroom homes. So I grew up in one of those houses, both parents, went to some of the best schools in Chicago, uh, Edison Gifted Center for Elementary School, and Walter Payton College Prep graduate school, which is like one of the top 30 high schools in the entire country. Let you know, again, I had no issues financially or education level. It's just my skin color. My sister gets cancer when I'm in high school. So instead of going to my dream school, and I was recruited by Princeton, Stanford, all these other schools for architecture, I went to University of Illinois, 
because I wanted to be home and be near her because she couldn't go back to college at Howard University where she was studying when she found out she got cancer. So I'm at University of Illinois. I'm working on a group project in the School of Architecture. I have two students that are on my team, a young lady and a young man. They didn't like the way that I designed. I didn't like the way that they designed. But we're a group, and a lot of times in architecture education, they force you to work in a group because when you're in the field, a lot of times you have to work in groups. So it's their way of getting you ready, trained for the profession. And they marginalized me out of the project, and they would do work on it while I wasn't there. And so I got frustrated. I was like, well, if you guys don't want me to do anything, I just won't do anything. And so I stopped doing the stuff that they asked me to do because it was the super, super uh, menial task that had no – it was like busy work. It was like, all right, you know, we'll just glue those little pieces together while we're doing all this other stuff. I'm like, I can do more than this. Let me do more than this. And they told the professor in the class on me that I wasn't being cooperative. You know, it's the whole angry black man thing. And so I go to the professor, and he says to me, and I will never forget this, his name is Paul J. Armstrong. I have no problem saying his name. This is the guy that said it. He said to me, Jermaine, I know you've probably worked really hard to get here. You have to overcome a lot of things from your background and where you're from. But architecture clearly isn't for you. You know, I mean, I commend you for making it this far. It's a strong task that you've done that, but you should do something else. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? First of all, you don't know where the fuck I'm from. Like, you don't know where I'm from at all. Let's not say that. Like, yeah. I'm from a family that has the same economic resources all the other people in here, so let's not do that. So that was the first example. So that fueled me a lot through the rest of undergrad. And so I got to my senior year, and I had a white female professor was my history and my history professor and it was like renaissance architecture or something like that and we had to write a paper uh based off of a time period in the building and i was tracking it at a for this class every paper i'd done i got an a to that point i'm doing the final paper and i cite an italian text but the italian text had excerpts in english within so i write the text and she gives me a plagiarism uh mark because she says in her exact words there's no way you know italian so I'm like, first of all, you don't know anything about me. Maybe I do speak Italian. Like, how do you know that? So that's that just making that assumption already has racial implications. I'm like, and then secondly, look at the work cited. The book is cited, and here's the book. The book has the excerpt I took in English. So now what are you going to say? Right. So that was my second one dealing with this crap. And then the last one is when I got to graduate school and I was working on my thesis proposal, which was around race and architecture, after my professor had told me race and architecture have no connection at all, which we clearly see every day is incorrect. But I had a professor literally stand up during my presentation and tell me my project was racist, where I had to, I had to um, inform her that I know, well, I'm black. It's impossible for me to be racist. I have no institutional power to restrict you or any other race. You can be racist. I can't. Learn a definition before you stand up and you shout things. And I said that to the professor. Those are just three examples that I have within architecture education of racist interactions with professors. Now, yeah, which is unfortunate. Uh, you, you, but you made it through. You, you've uh, built a successful career. And now you're, of course, uh, spreading the word and trying to enable or empower the next generation, as we spoke about earlier. What what can the organizations uh, that have served, you know, the architecture community uh, for, for so long, uh, how do we get more people of color, uh, more diversity, inclusiveness, um, you know, not just as a PR stunt, uh, you know, uh, but now for it to affect real change um, in these organizations, such as, such as like, you know, the AIA, 
um, and you can probably name yep. a, a, a thousand yep. more. How do we get these institutions in, and who are they uh, to, to actually step up to the plate right now? I think you're, I think you're, you're on the right track, right? So you have AIA, you have um, APA, which is American Planning Association. You have NCARB, which is the licensing board for architecture. You have ACSA, which is the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture. So you have these, these, these letter organizations that are sort of the gatekeepers to the promotion of specific firms and architects and schools, et cetera. Um, so the first step is making those more diverse, and you do that by looking outside of your typical ivory packet of applications. So that's always the default. It's let's go Upper East Coast and let's pick somebody who went to an Ivy League school, because clearly if they went to an Ivy, they're an elite candidate, which is can be the furthest thing from the truth. I know a lot of people who have an Ivy League education who I can design circles around or who the average architect can design circles around. It's just some of those people decided, I don't want to have $300,000 worth of debt when I graduate, so I'm not going to go there. Whereas some people have the financial wherewithal to say, yeah, I can take on this debt. And again, that goes back to the privilege. So that's the first thing. Stop assuming that everybody has to come from MIT, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, et cetera. There's schools in the Midwest, there's schools on the West Coast, there's schools in the South that are producing wonderful architects, researchers, designers that can contribute. So if you do that, you instantly make it more diverse because those places are more diverse. Next, you have to look outside of architecture sometimes because a lot of the work that we're doing is intersectional work and it's work that crosses barriers into gender and equity and finance and community service and healthcare. And it's not singular to just architect architecture because a lot of us have to think about things beyond that because we're black and we don't, we're not allowed to live in a silo. Like we have to think about the reverberations of race way beyond the average person. So look to those fields because you have people who are in dance writing about space. You have people who are in anthropology talking about space. These people have the necessary skill set to be able to contribute to architecture. They just might not have the title of architect and they might not use the same nomenclature, but it's the exact same topic. So when you do that, you're able to have more diverse discourse and when you have more diverse discourse, you're able to expand the candidates, you're able to expand representation on these editorial boards to do, as you said, the most important thing, and that's to make this a lifelong endeavor and not just an inflection point of 2020 where everybody's putting black boxes up because that's the thing to do for a Tuesday, but ensuring real structural internal change that is going to be long and arduous, but is necessary in order to show a field that represents everyone holistically because it's not fair to have all these white people designing stuff in black neighborhoods and not involve black designers it's not fair to have black designers not be able to design things in black neighborhoods and we have nimbyism right not in my backyard so if you call yourself a white progressive or a white ally and you're for black lives matter but you don't want social housing in your pretty little white neighborhood then that's a contradiction you're lying because you live where the resources are allow these people who you say matter to have access to those same resources. And that only happens by adding housing to their neighborhoods. So that's how institutions do it. That's how organizations do it. They advocate on behalf. If you know that single mom or that single dad or that family has two jobs at night, then you who have privilege go in their stead and advocate on their behalf. But a lot of times people don't want to do that stuff. Yeah. Hopefully that's interesting. Well, yeah. So, you know, it goes back to talk is cheap, but uh, action is going to cost you something. And uh, whether that's yep. your resources, your money, 
you know, uh, a space in your heart, your your mind for truly caring about, you know, uh, humanity. Because as you were talking about, you know, the cross-pollination of disciplines, uh, even though you, have, you don't have the title architect, the, a diverse discourse, right, have a better outcome in the long term in solving problems. And this goes back to what I've always, uh, you know, tried to to push forward is, is, is that we're all interconnected and I don't understand how we don't see that, you know, some yep. part of the population is so blinded to that and is so entrenched in their ways and is, you know, uh, we need to just kind of really, really step back for a moment and, and go at it, uh, for, for real solutions, uh, this time around. And that, you know, not only architects, architecture, but, you know, get more people in that who are diverse, uh, into the field of planning and 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 uh, you know policy, as you say, and go go to the root levels of all of this, and 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 sit with these people, truly be vested, uh, return wealth into these neighborhoods. Um, Couldn't agree more. Yeah, you know, and, and and really make it happen. So, you know, uh, just to kind of wrap up, uh, just tell me, as far as humanity is concerned, uh, no matter what color you are, what a legacy. What kind of legacy do you want to leave and how do you encourage people in this time? Given COVID, uh, 2020, everyone's, you know, hashtag 2020 canceled. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, you know, I think th- there's, there's, it's a very important moment right now where people are just kind of questioning what's important to them. Um, how are you seeing that for yourself and how do you, how do we inspire people to now, you know, t- take a course of really thinking about, what comes after them, that this is not just about right now and what they consume in this life, but really this is always a long game for humanity going forward. Um, so, I, I mean, I'll answer them separately, uh, one for myself and one for humanity. I was always taught by my parents, you want to leave the place better than the way you found it, whether that's going to visit someone's apartment or someone's house or the world in general. And that's how I live my life. I try to make sure that I give more than I take. And I make sure to do the best that I can with the resource that I have and to allow those who haven't had the opportunity, the same opportunities that I have. So that's just a personal thing. As far as humanity, I believe that like it, the onus is on the world to self-reflect and to take off the biases and look at the privileges that each of us have in some regard, whether that's a woman or as a man or as a black person, Asian person, Latino person, et cetera, because we all have some sort of bias and we all have some sort of privilege. And so to be able to acknowledge those two things will immediately allow for a better future because then you're aware of the awful things that you're doing or you're more aware of the necessary things you need to do in order to make the place better for everyone and more equitable and just because it isn't about equality. Like we're past the point of equality. We're at the point now where things need to be just and equitable. And that means you're going, to, you're going to have to prop up some individuals more than others because they've been disenfranchised and suppressed and marginalized uh, for a longer period of time. So humanity has an obligation to those suppressed communities to put them on their shoulders and prop them up. And so that, that's what I would demand of, of humanity, to, to prop up those who haven't had that opportunity. Wonderful. Well, Jermaine, thanks so much for uh, being on today. I appreciate your time. Thanks and, for having me. Uh, Yeah, and I look forward to uh, continuing our conversation.
I would like to thank uh, Jermaine Barnes for joining us today on Earthlandia. Uh, follow his work, yeah, the link information and his bio and profile info is in our show uh, description So on this particular episode. So check him out and uh, follow his work. Join us online at herblandia.com for more updates and uh, announcements. Uh, also, you can find us on any of your favorite streaming platforms. Don't forget to rate and uh, review us and uh, leave your comments. Uh, again, thanks for listening.